myself up tonight for some reason. <laughs> anyway, so, start it? Oh, okay. So tonight I'd like to talk about relaxation and insight. I'm going to talk about relaxation within the framework of vipassana, insight meditation. And um, I'm sure all of us are very aware that we're living in, under very stressful conditions uh, most of the time living on this planet. And uh, because things are so stressful, of course, there are of course many available forms of relaxation or different ways that are very common ways of uh, managing that stress, you know, kind of attempts to release it or distract oneself from uh, the demands of ordinary life. Many of the conventional forms of relaxation that we're accustomed to, things like uh, turning to TV, forget what the average American, how many hours an average American watches TV, I think it's in the range of four or five hours a day. That's a lot of TV. That's a lot of TV, given everybody's working 12 hours a day. Um, the internet, of course, is a modern phenomena. Uh, there's uh, movies, of course, and music. And, um, of course, vacations. We all love vacations. We count on them. Sometimes they feel like they save us uh, so that we can recharge and go back in there. Uh, we use physical activities. You know, I go to the gym. You know, people do different kinds of things to relieve the stress and to take care of their bodies or um, manage their lives. And also um, there's, there's other ways, that very common ways, which are very predominant in our culture, which is the use of alcohol and misuse of alcohol sometimes, and certainly drugs and sex and all of those things uh, can be misused for sure. And oftentimes they are used as a way to um, release tension, manage stress, move away from pain. And some of these forms of relaxation, you know, it's not to um, criticize them. I mean, I, I personally love vacations. I enjoy music. I watch a little TV. You know, there's um, nothing that I want to place a value judgment on except, you know, when things get misused uh, or abused, then, of course, it's a big problem. Um, but it's more to point out the limitations when we rely solely on these forms of relaxation in order to manage our stress, uh, in order to get by, in order to survive. And how they're limited is that, for one, there's a certain set of conditions that have to come together. Most of us don't get 52 weeks of vacation. In fact, really, in this culture, we get very few often. Um, So that's a very temporary fix. It's a very temporary refuge. Physical activities, same thing. You know, can't always run, can't always go to the gym, can't always go hiking or swimming. Might be able to enjoy them while it's happening, but then still, once again, we return. You know, we return to the conditions of our lives, and have we learned anything from those, from that, from those moments? That's the question. And quite often, these forms of relaxation. Rather than learning something from them or growing or, or transforming or, or learning how 
to work with stress in a more skillful way, in a way where, you know, it's, it's moment to moment that we're actually dealing with the conditions in our life in a fundamentally different way so that we're not accumulating stress. By relying on these forms, exclusively anyways, of relaxation, unfortunately what happens is I think it disempowers us. Because a lot of times they're just forms of distraction. And in, in, in by doing that, what often it, it's kind of a, it becomes a distraction or an obstacle. It, it takes up a lot of time and energy where perhaps we could be developing inner resources, not perhaps we could be developing inner resources that are much more reliable. You know, that nurture a relaxation that's not so conditioned, not so limited. Relying a form of relaxation where we can discover that ease of mind under any situation that we find ourselves in. And when we cultivate that, those inner resources, which is definitely what we're doing here, whether we know it or not, you know, we're calling on, on qualities that are already present and we're nurturing those inner resources. It's not something you get from a meditation center. Meditation center is creating conditions for us to discover those powers within us and then to see if they're useful. Not only useful on retreat, but useful in our daily life. Of course, we want to argue, we want to say that they are, just from what we've observed over the years. So these inner resources are more reliable. They're empowering, in a sense. They cultivate confidence. Because when we have the inner resources to respond to stressful situations, deal with them in a skillful way, learning to respond you know, with wisdom or compassion in whatever situation you're in, then we begin to discover a much deeper level of relaxation and ease. And of course, that's the relaxation of Dharma. So the practice very much is not about manufacturing experiences. It's not even about having a particular experience and then kind of holding on to it, trying to use it. It's about nurturing qualities of mind that are innate, that are variable to all human beings. And the method that we're working with is designed to nurture those qualities. Predominantly Americans, or Americans, all beings, have nurtured the thinking process, using our thoughts, analyzing, figuring out. And what most of us have come to see by now is that we, we may not be able to think our way to inner peace. And we've tried a lot of thinking. You know, we've tried to analyze, we've traced back our forms of suffering, we've uh, developed all sorts of strategies you know, for managing stress. And it's not to say that thinking isn't useful, of course it is. When, we, when it's guided by awareness, thinking is incredibly useful. It's discernment when it's guided by awareness, by, when it's guided by self-knowledge, when it's guided by mindfulness, when it's guided by a mind that's in the present moment, responding to conditions in a fresh way, then thinking is creative. It's very different than our habitual thinking. A lot of the thinking that we've observed on this retreat, a lot of it is pretty repetitive. I don't know if you noticed that. 
but you know, sometimes we arrive on retreat and we think we're pretty bright, intelligent, smart people. And then we start sitting. Uh, and we kind of take a look at our minds and, and we see the same tape loop over and over again. And of course, the main character in that tape loop is who? Basically, right? Me, of course. And it's pretty mundane, a lot of the stuff. You know, you start fantasizing about what we're going to have for a light meal. Uh, and like, that's like a really big deal. Uh, you know, think about that for a minute. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal, actually. It's gone. It comes and goes. And, you know, hopefully there were a few moments of pleasure or satisfaction in it. But, um, you know, the mind is very, uh, you know, it's very small in a lot of ways, our thinking is. It's very self-referential. You know, we're off in the center of the universe. And, of course, we know objectively we're not, but our thinking tells us that. You know, that's the habit of thinking. So one way of working with the thinking mind, to begin to discover an alternative, you know, to begin to uh, uncover, it very much is a process of uncovering this training, uh, uncovering another kind of intelligence, another capacity, rather than just simply relying on thinking to, to manage our stress or thinking to, to make our way out or thinking in terms of finding the, the, free, the freedom from suffering that we all aspire to for sure. I think all human beings do aspire for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering, but most of us don't know, you know, what that path is. Uh, so it's a process of discovery. And that's absolutely the heart of Buddhist meditation, is this process of discovery. It's about seeing for oneself, you know, whether the practice is useful or not. And that's, re- that's exactly what the Buddha taught. Let's take it up, give it a try, see if it's useful. After a while, if it doesn't prove to be useful, then don't, no need to do it. The one difficulty, I think, is that it sometimes takes a while. And in our culture, we're very impatient. And we come in with a lot of expectations. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so that, that puts a lot of pressure. Like we immediately want to begin to see results. Uh, that we're conditioned to think that way. In Dharma practice, or the kinds of inner resources we're tapping into, are, quite frankly, are, are new forms of intelligence. They're resources that are there, but are extremely undeveloped. And so it does require a certain amount of patience or perseverance and the wise effort to tap into these resources. And a method for most of us mortals, you know, we need a practical way of approaching practice. Like how do we cultivate or how do we tap into these inner resources? You know, of course what we're saying here in this retreat is through meditation. You know, through meditation we can nurture uh, these qualities. And so one very deep form of relaxation that we can begin to discover. Now, I'm not saying we've discovered it today. If you're brand new, you may not have um, experienced much of it yet. But certainly if we continue on the path uh, for a while, we certainly will. And that's the re- relaxation of a stable attention, you know, a calming mind, a mind that develops calm, which is in everyday life, in ordinary conditions, oftentimes is very unavailable to us. You know, we might have a few moments of calm, but as soon as the conditions change, um, it's gone. And so I know for me, um, when I first began the practice, I pretty much threw myself into it. Like 
really head over heels and really dove into it. And what I did was, is I, I worked very hard at this particular method that we're working with. And, you know, over some pretty long sustained periods of time in silent retreats. And, you know, I, I certainly one of the forms of relaxation that I, I encountered right away, you know, like right away meaning over a course of time, within the first several months, certainly, of practice, was, um, you know, samadhi, or calm, or, or stabilization of attention. And, uh, you know, kind of, in some ways, it's, it's a, there's a kind of a quieting of thoughts in that process. You know, and, and we discover a little bit of room. Uh, and we begin to taste a little bit of joy or peace in that process. And then out of that, I'll get to the limitations of that in a minute, but out of that, what happened for me for sure was is that I developed more confidence you know, that I had these inner resources and that through a practice I could gain access to that calm. You know, that I could see that the mind was way, way more powerful than I would have ever imagined it to be. And certainly way more powerful than just my thinking process, which was, at the point when I began practice, was amazingly limited. Limited by fear and worry, anxiety, and all sorts of issues. So when I tapped into calm, it, it, it proved to be quite a refuge. I mean, so much so that, of course, my, what do you think my mind did with that? It attached to it in a really big way. And of course, that's the fastest route to suffering you can take. Uh, is to attach to something. And even attach to concentration or that calm creates suffering. And for me, lots of suffering came along with that attachment. And probably I was attached to it for probably about 10 years. Uh, it's a long time. Uh, when, and what that meant was is that I was always, you know, I always tried to, 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 to tap into that calm. And uh, it became in some ways, you know, a primary refuge. But again, it was limited. You know, it was limited to a certain set of conditions. You know, doing intensive practice or sitting regularly or, you know, I'd come off the cushion and then I'd be dealing with relationships and all sorts of issues and, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of samadhi in there and there was certainly not a lot of wisdom in those situations. Because calm doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom. That's what the Buddha discovered. In many ways, he discovered the hard way. That just calming the mind isn't enough. But along the way, you know, it's a sign. It's, we can build on that calm. We can build on that steadiness of attention. It's, it's significant, for sure. It helps develop insight and wisdom, for sure. But it's not the, the end of the path by any stretch. But it is a very deep form of relaxation. And it can provide a lot of healing along the way. As we relax, the body relaxes with calm. You know, we start relaxing more and more and the mind gets very content, content with itself. And within that, we can see that we don't always have to look outside. I think that was one of the things that came with it to me was, oh, wait a second, I can actually experience happiness and joy, not from just attaching to a particular set of conditions, but that I have that capacity within my own, within my own experience, within myself. If I cultivate calm, I can actually experience joy and happiness there. 
So in some ways it's a taste of the unconditional, but it's not really. It's still conditional. You know, most of us are interested in saving time, uh, you know, with the practice. Like, we don't want to, you don't want to be like me, attaching to something for 10 years and then discovering, you know, boy, you know, that was basically a waste of time to attach to that. Um, you don't want to discover that. We wanted to, you know, we want to facilitate this awakening process. And definitely being in a hurry does not help by any stretch of the imagination. But there's certain obstacles that we can begin to clear away that don't necessarily take 20 years. You know, certain lessons, certain um, kinds of wisdom, uh, an understanding about approaching the practice, how we hold our practice is so crucial. I mean, it's amazingly important to begin to understand what wise attitude is in practice, like how to go about it. You know, it's, it's crucial. Unwise attitude creates, can just torment us. And it can create enormous amount of self-doubt and discouragement and frustration and undermine us and resignation. And we can give up all our aspirations. We can give up if we approach it with an unwise attitude. So understanding wise attitude, it's not an overnight experience. But it's important to begin to see to begin to understand some of the principles of what is wise attitude, at least within the framework of Dharma practice, within the framework of insight meditation. And so we spend a lot of time talking about attitude. And the Chan master that Ryan studied with and myself studied with, there was a lot of emphasis on attitude. A lot of time was spent about attitude because he understood that Wise attitude creates the conditions for our awakening. It helps remove the obstacles from learning, from insight. It's a way of orienting the practice and orienting our minds, orienting the mindfulness practice so that we begin to clear the clouds of confusion away. And we can develop a capacity to be with our experience with much, much greater ease much, much greater ease. And a learning occurs more quickly when that's the case. If we're approaching our experiences, we're holding them in a certain way. The mind has this innate form of intelligence, mindfulness, that can work on that experience and reveal the nature of that experience so that we can learn new ways of being, new ways of relating to our experience, new ways of relating to other folks or the world that we're living in. So attitude is crucial. But for most of us, we come in with unwise attitude. We, we learned um, you know, how to achieve certain things um, you know, by putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. And, and uh, a lot of us operate within the uh, framework of success and failure is our attitude. So a lot of our self-worth might be um, linked 
within that framework of success and failure, or win and lose. You know, often hear that expression, there's always winners, and whenever there's a winner, there's a loser. Well, within that framework, I'm sure that's true, but that's a very limited framework, but it's one that we buy into quite easily. In meditation practice, I don't want to disappoint you, but there's no such thing as success. You will never be a successful meditator, ever. Keep working at it, you'll still never be a successful meditator. You'll never be a failing meditator. You'll never be a failure in practice. It doesn't apply. It's not about that. That's a limited, deeply conditioned, slippery, unreliable framework for practice, for this process of unfolding that we're engaged in. It's much deeper, much more profound. You know, success and failure, the concepts that we impose on ourselves and other people impose on us. Now, it's not to say you, you, know, you can slack off at work or just nothing matters or any of that. That's not what I'm pointing to. But I'm pointing to um, success is relative. And it doesn't... Just as there's no such thing as a good meditation, there's no such thing as a bad meditation. It just doesn't, it doesn't apply. It's not the framework of this particular practice. Framework about this practice is, first of all, what's key is a little bit of humility. You know, in that framework of success and failure, there's not a lot of room for humility because we we associate that with failing. We're afraid of that. Uh, but in this practice, it really helps to know that you don't know. Really helps a lot. Like if you if if we can like just recognize that we don't have all the answers. Now I know in the world of success and failure in the world that most of us operate in, we're supposed to have the answers. You know, people even pay us for that. So we're supposed to have the answers. Well, in Dharma practice, none of us have all the answers. You know, it's a learning process, and it's a lifetime learning process. And it's helpful to know that you don't know, because that creates a more open approach to practice, when we can actually begin to see that what it is, it's a learning practice. You know, it's a learning process. It's not about becoming you know, somebody else or becoming a great meditator, a successful meditator. But of course, we're conditioned, very deeply conditioned to think that way when we come to practice. So how many times have we thought today, oh God, you know, this is, I'm really not doing very well at all here. Uh, The mind is sleepy all day. Why did I come? Uh, I can't do this. The person next to me is sitting like a Buddha. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like really got this pain. I'm sleepy. I'm restless. I'm bored. I hate the place. I didn't like the food. You know, there's like all this stuff. And one really starts feeling very down on oneself. You know, very self-critical. Feeling like we, feeling like we have failed. Let me give you an example of how strong the conditioning is around win-lose. Loss-gain. Success, failure, and how deep it is. Back like ages and ages and ages ago, uh, when the center was in its early years, uh, I worked on staff. And it was a different time. And it was really a different place, to tell you the truth. You wouldn't recognize it from then. Um, But meditation was not that popular. You know, the retreats were not that big. 
there weren't very many of them. You know, we would have one or two retreats a month here at the center. You know, some of them would be seven days. I remember one teacher canceled, like, the first summer I worked here on staff, um, one teacher canceled a month-long retreat, and that was it. We had the summer off on staff, and, and there was only like 10 of us. So it was a pretty good life. Uh, you know, I mean, it was pretty leisurely. Kind of felt like you were, you know, like, I don't know, some country gentleman or gentlewoman. You know, you had this little mansion here, and, and uh, you could do different things, cruise around, you know, go swimming. They do those things still. Now they have like 30, you know, so three times more staff and way more retreats. They work a lot harder. But one time during the summer, of course, there was a lot of room to do things, and we'd get bored. We'd end up doing something other than So one of my co-staff persons um, played tennis. And I grew up, I didn't play tennis. It just wasn't in my family. You know, we played other sports. I played a lot of other sports, but not tennis. And so he grabbed a couple of rackets, invited me to play tennis, and there was some local, some courts down, right outside of downtown Barry. Um, and we started playing. It was like maybe late summer. And uh, we, were real, we had a great time. It was just so much fun to kind of get out of, away from a meditation center and get out there and move our bodies and play and, and really get going. And he was pretty competitive, and that was getting me going too. And we were playing and really had a lot of, there was a lot of joy in the, in the, the experience. And so we would come back to staff and we would, you know, be very enthusiastic about our experience and we would get other people going. And so pretty soon a few other people would start playing tennis. Uh, too. And so pretty soon, like almost half the staff probably was playing tennis. At least half the staff was out there playing tennis one point or another. And everybody started was having a pretty good time. And then someone had a really dumb, dumb, dumb idea <laughs> that we should have a tournament. <laughs> let's, let's have a tournament and let's see who can win this tournament. In fact, there was even a trophy that someone came up for the winner. So we started playing, and immediately the tenure of the tenor of the, the tenor of the play of tennis started changing, and people's conditioning started kicking in, uh, and people started getting like you know taking it a little bit more seriously, um, and you know some t- we'd come back and people would be gloating after they won, you know, and then other people who lost would be a little on the downhearted side, and you know they would be teasing and playing and. Uh, so it went on for a little while like that. And you know, you, one could see the joy was getting sucked out of the experience that started out like just play. Uh, and so by the end, I, I didn't win that particular contest. By the end, the person got the trophy. And after the trophy presentation, pretty much everybody just quit tennis, <laughs> basically, because they had lost all the joy in that particular activity. And it, you could see what we could see. We didn't actually see. I can see it now, and I could see it a few years ago when I looked back. But at the time, I don't, there weren't many people actually recognizing. Now, we're, we're very committed yogis. We're very committed meditators. Everybody on staff were like, whew, really into practice. And still is true, but we're really into practice. Um, but still, we didn't necessarily see what we were doing and that our conditioning was getting in the way of creating uh, stress, basically, a state of non-relaxation. So we didn't see that. So then we stopped playing tennis, the fall went by, and then the winter came. And you can imagine winter in Barrie, what it's like, snow, cold, freezing, windy. You're not going to be playing tennis. So we started playing ping pong downstairs. <laughs> there was a ping pong table downstairs in the basement. Funky old basement 
game. And again, you know, I started playing with a couple of guys and staff people, women, and we started really enjoying it. Then someone had a really dumb, <laughs> dumb, dumb idea that we should have a tournament for ping pong. Now this is after what happened to tennis just a little while ago. And so we can see there's no learning going on in this experience, right? There's, there's really not a hell of a lot of mindfulness going on here. There's just conditioning, playing itself out. Ignorance is what the Buddha would describe it, which is repeating the same mistake. And so fanatically we went at, at ping pong, even more so than tennis, because everybody was playing this, this. And I do remember that I happened to win this contest. <laughs> I got my little trophy, and again, people stopped playing ping pong. It was over. That particular you know, drive was driven out of us. Um, and thus, you know, the retreat center went on, and we just settled into our jobs and took up something else. But we can see that uh, what we bring um, to something that's really quite beautiful or joyful, which practice can be, you know, the beauty of the simplicity. You know, the opportunity you've given yourself this weekend to actually be with yourself is a beautiful thing. It's a gift. It's rare. Yet, it ain't easy. And one of the main reasons it's not easy is because of our attitude towards experiences when they come up. In other words, oftentimes we have an agenda. We impose an agenda on our experience. So when we become sleepy, it's not just the sleepiness that's causing the suffering, because sleepiness doesn't cause suffering. It doesn't cause suffering. Our relationship to sleepiness when we're sitting on the cushion is what's causing suffering. It's our relationship. And what's causing suffering around sleepiness is the thought that I wish this wasn't happening. It shouldn't be happening. I should have more energy. I should have gotten more sleep last night. The place really just isn't conducive for sleep. So there's all this judgment and all this maybe even shame or self-criticism. All these things that we're piling on, we're imposing this should on the experience of sleepiness. This very simple, natural, normal experience of sleepiness. We pile on and we construct a self out of that. And it's a self-critical self. It's a failing self. And the reality of that is, when we go to bed, what do we want to do? We want to sleep. So it's not sleepiness. Within the context of sitting, we have a different agenda than the context of going to bed. And so we attach to that agenda. And we do this over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. We uh, impose expectations on ourselves. In insight meditation, one of the primary insights, one of the primary insights is to see that you're not in control of your body-mind process. That's actually an insight. It's not about controlling your body-mind process. It's seeing that you're not and learning to relax and relate to that process. See it for what it is, but relate to it in a way that doesn't create or generate suffering. So if we impose an agenda on an experience that's not in our control, it's a setup. If we could tell our minds to stop thinking, we would. But we can't. The mind won't go along with that. 
And that's an insight. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't experience peace. No, we can. But we have to orient our minds differently. We have to begin to relate to what we're encountering, including thoughts, in a fundamentally different way. Being more allowing of what your actual experience is, is crucial. Crucial. That's not easy because of all these judgments, agendas, and expectations. But we want to remember to do it. We, in other words, we're going to bump up against our expectations. Very difficult to practice without any expectations, without putting any pressure on yourself, without having a particular agenda. So I'm not creating an ideal here, like, oh, now I'm going to practice without an agenda. What do you think that is? <laughs> That's called another agenda. Right? No. We have to recognize our agendas. We have to recognize our expectations. We have to recognize our self-criticism or our self-judgment. And we need to just simply be mindful of it, aware, without judging it. Because in that process, we're not reinforcing the expectation. We're seeing it as an object of mindfulness. And we can actually see it and actually see how it's creating suffering for us, how it knocks us out of balance, how it limits our capacity to be with ourselves. And that's at the heart of it. We're developing the capacity to be with ourselves in a more open-hearted, loving way. A major obstacle of that to that is our attachment to the way we think things should be or shouldn't be. And so being mindful of that attitude, the unwise attitude, the expectations, the agenda, allows us to begin to not only question it, but the expectations are seen as not as substantial, not as real, just thoughts, just attitudes that we're imposing on our experience. And we also see how unproductive it is, how it can lead to a lot of frustration and self-judging and discouragement and despair. So we can begin to see, ah, when, I, when I'm not allowing how much suffering creeps into my experience, how that knocks out, so how it makes the restlessness so much more painful when I'm telling myself, Oh, I should be with the breath, but I'm feeling really restless or bored. That's a, that's a comment. That's a, that's a judgment. That's an expectation that we're putting on ourselves. Rather than saying, okay, I'm feeling restless. It does, it's not comfortable. You know, it doesn't feel good. Sure, it might be nice if the mind was calm, but it's not. So let's deal with it. Let's try to make room for it. You know, we might have already mentioned that particular question. Asking ourselves is a very helpful way to check in with our attitude and say, Okay, I'm feeling sleepy. Can I make room for that particular experience? And it's an investigative question. You may feel after the fourth sitting that you're feeling really sleepy. There's no room to accept it. There's no room to allow it. And that's what we call resistance. So make room for the resistance. The anger, the frustration, the discouragement that we're feeling because sleepiness keeps arising. Make room for that experience. Acknowledge, ah, there's resistance. There's, I really hate this restlessness. Okay, make room for that. That's what your actual experience is. That's what the practice is about dealing with. It's about dealing with our actual experience, not creating some ideal. It's not even about saying, oh, be okay. I'm not saying be okay with sleepiness. If you're not okay with it, fine. But be mindful and aware of not being okay. Because that's what your actual experience is. So we're not manufacturing some model here about how it is supposed to unfold or what you're supposed to experience when you sit. Everybody is different. And the experiences are coming and going. 
thank heavens we don't create a model about like what you're supposed to experience because it would be a setup for every meditator on the planet. Things change and unfold all the time. We're energy systems. We're in constant state of change. We have moods, we have emotions, we have reactions, we have thoughts, we have feelings, we have body sensations, we listen to sounds. Okay? All those experiences are coming and going. That's what makes up our life, the world that we're living in. In some ways, it's kind of getting out of the way you know, of your experience, rather than trying to contain it or to control it. And that attitude, when we begin to re- uh, remember that attitude, to remind ourselves of, oh yeah, you know, can I make room for this experience? Asking that, you know, sev- you know many times in a sitting even, when you're feeling strong, is can I make room? And like I said, if there's a no, you make room for the no. But that attitude profoundly creates the conditions for relaxation. Because think about this for a minute. If we're genuinely learning to be more allowing of what our experience is, there's an ease that comes with that. There's a confidence, actually, that comes out of that space. A confidence that, hey, I can actually be with myself. Because a lot of those forms of relaxation that I was talking about are forms that take us out of ourselves. Away from ourselves, away from our problems. Here we're relating to our problems in a different way. We're not moving away from our problems. That's not how you free oneself from suffering. It's learning through understanding, holding our experience, but holding it with wisdom and compassion, mindfulness, and bringing the light of awareness or understanding into the nature of that experience. And then the mind deeply relaxes, it develops faith that we're up to it. You know, what's deeply ingrained in most of us, you know, underneath the confidence and the competence and the success and the praise and all of that, there's a deep insecurity that we're not up to it. And that's deeply conditioned and embedded. And society depends on it. It keeps this wheel moving. It feeds that whole success model. We have to keep proving it over and over again, rather than questioning that particular motivation or that intention and beginning to see that when we buy into it completely, you know, it's very unsatisfying. Very unsatisfying. We're, we're much, there's more to us than that. Way more to us than that. We're creative, you know, intelligent, beings who have tremendous capacities that we that are often undiscovered in practices designed to nurture that. So we need to learn how to allow both the things that we don't like and to be with the things that we do. And of course what what wise attitude facilitates this attitude of being willing to be with your experience to work with that edge, that creates the conditions for mindfulness to function. Wise attitude and mindfulness, they work together. Out of mindfulness, wise attitude gets developed. Out of wise attitude, mindfulness uh, has a free reign. You know, it, it, it's free to explore and to meet the present moment. 
See, because we're creating the conditions to be with the present moment, to be with our actual experience, and then the light of mindfulness, that creative intelligence, that innate intelligence, then allows us to touch that experience and explore it, get to know its nature. You know, see the unpleasant quality, the pleasant quality to it, or the neutral quality to it. Uh, what's the nature of this experience that we're paying attention to? If we notice it, we might notice the fact that it's forms of energy. You know, mindfulness is meeting things just as they are, without any preconceptions or labels. And what we begin to see is this body is an energy system, so is the mind. The environment is a form of energy. You know, it's constantly changing. The labels are useful at times, but they're not the ultimate truth. The descriptions, we need the descriptions at times, but they're not the ultimate truth of the experience. So mindfulness, that, that intelligence that doesn't have bias, it has no expectations. So if we're being mindful of a physical pain, mindfulness isn't telling us, hey, you know, this shouldn't be happening. Uh, man, you know, I'm getting old, or I got to, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's not what mindfulness is doing. That's what our thinking, our reactivity is doing. Okay? Mindfulness is just letting us know what our experience is. Wisdom, of course, needs to kick in out of that space. Okay? We need to, mindfulness is a door into wisdom. Mindfulness is a door into compassion. But certainly mindfulness is a key form of intelligence that we want to count on, we want to rely on, we want to develop. In one area um, that's really important, I think it's one of the strengths of insight meditation, of Vipassana training, is this awareness of the third foundation of mindfulness, which is being mindful of, of mental states, emotions, moods, and reactions. You know, it's so crucial. You know, we began to open the door up with the instructions uh, at 6.30. Uh, we'll develop them more tomorrow morning at the 8.15 sitting. But, but, the, but the point is, is that it's beginning to get a sense that we can take these experiences that we're so, that we're so subject to, that we're so ruled by, you know, that we're so uh, disempowered by when we get caught by them. We're so pushed around, knocked around uh, by our emotions and our moods and our reactions to things. They're so habitual. Um, they drive us in directions that are very unsatisfying. Um, they're limiting. Um, oftentimes creating lots of obstacles to discover the resources that will really free us. And so beginning to take reactions and emotions and moods, different states of mind that come up, sadness, happiness, grief, anger, fear, worry, planning, all these different experiences that make up human consciousness, you know, conditioned consciousness, beginning to take them as objects of mindfulness is a radical step towards a deepening of relaxation. And it's the relaxation of freedom that we're talking about now. You know, it's not just the calm. It's the freedom of creating space and room. Once we're mindful of a reaction, we don't necessarily have to act it out. We don't have necessarily have to uh, buy it or believe the story in that particular reaction. We can actually take it as an object of mindfulness, creates room in the mind so that, some, so that it's possible if we're reacting to sleepiness with aversion, if we're mindful of the aversion, that creates room and we can say, oh yeah, I'm just feeling really angry or frustrated here. You know, it opens up the possibility of relating to that sleepiness different. It also op- offers the opportunity to relate to the aversion or the resistance differently. 
We don't have to completely buy that story, like I'm worthless because I've been sleepy all day. We don't have to buy that story. That's just a version. If we're not mindful of it, it's convincing and it undermines us. If we're mindful of it, we see it as an object of mindfulness and we'll see that it comes and goes. It arises under certain conditions, expresses itself, and then disappears. That's freedom. And insight meditation, that's my opinion, my view, is that's one of its strengths. Because we get to know ourselves. We get to know how we relate. We're always, that's always included in the field of living. We're talking about our life, living, bringing practice in. We're not only paying attention to the external conditions, trying to discern what's wise and what's not, but we're also paying attention to what our mind is doing in relationship to those conditions. It's not an introverted practice. It's not even, in a sense, introspective. But it's aware of both the outer and the inner. It's a whole. It's a whole. If we're being mindful and awake, we're aware of where we are, the context in which we're living, the context of the activity itself, but also we're aware of what we're doing in relationship to that context. And this becomes much more natural as we begin to practice. It becomes, it changes consciousness. You know, at the beginning it takes a lot of work. And under certain situations it takes a lot of work because the conditions we're dealing with are so compelling and provocative that the reactions are so strong that it overpowers the mindfulness. But over the course of time, what gradually happens is there's an understanding that living life means paying attention to all of that. Because as we pay attention, we learn to do things differently. We learn to make different choices. We learn to be discerning so that we don't keep repeating things that don't work. You know, the mind gets clearer, more discerning, more able to identify sources of suffering more able to identify where freedom lies, and more ability to actually follow that path towards freedom, rather than to be sucked into conditional habits of mind. And that's the relaxation, and that's the freedom that's more unconditioned. In other words, you can see that if you're being, one is being mindful of one's reactions under different conditions, and that opens up some room to respond, which can bring a lot of peace. Now we're talking about the freedom in everyday life. That's where practice starts, you know, being integrated, where life actually becomes a practice, where learning is an ongoing process. And there's always something to learn. You know, I don't think our work ever gets done. But this tremendous fruit that comes along the way, the confidence that comes out of knowing yourself really intimately and knowing all sides of yourself, the things that you don't like, the things that you were ashamed of, the things that were unhealed, that got healed. The Buddha describes it as unshakable. It's that that clarity of mind, uh, that confidence that comes out of that, out of that hard work, our work, our effort, kind of effort we're making here. That's a really, really fundamentally different level of relaxation than turning on the Red Sox game.
which I enjoy doing sometimes, I must say. It's different. It's not escaping. Meditation is not an escape. But it is a path towards freedom, freedom from suffering. And that freedom comes through understanding, seeing things as they are. Then that's insight meditation. Okay. So let's just take a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.